Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 1-2-3 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel to give you a window to look through experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic, anytime. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end of the program where we're going to share some exciting opportunities and please feel free to share this with people who you know who will also find it of interest. Today, we're going to be discussing, well, one of my five favorite books of the Torah, um, Leviticus Matters. When I had an opportunity to do this episode, I have to be honest that I started out with the premise that many Christians don't see or get the significance of Leviticus. And I've been looking for an opportunity to host our current guest for some time, and this seemed like the perfect opportunity. When I approached her, she said yes immediately, but pushed back on my premise, saying that clearly Christians understand Leviticus is part of the divine word of God, and therefore we should, we and they cannot lose sight of that. And of course, that's true. For Jews, even though much of Leviticus has to do with bringing offerings, which we don't currently do, there are many pillars in Leviticus that are relevant to us as Jews today in our daily lives. Nevertheless, of all of the first five books of the Bible, Leviticus is arguably harder to understand and relate to today, particularly for non-Jews. We've heard of the proclivity of some pastors skipping over Leviticus, as it doesn't seem that relevant. And indeed, some pastors discard the significance of the entire Hebrew Bible, which is another conversation altogether. I've learned in my journey that not understanding something is not an excuse to turn the page, but to dig in and create understanding. And that's the case with me, each of us individually, and together as Jews and Christians, as we build bridges. And that's why we're having today's conversation. We can't skip over Leviticus or say it has no meaning. If it's God's divine word, we need to understand it, not dismiss it or erase it or roll our eyes and say next. So how do Jews and Christians understand the significance of Leviticus in our lives and being relevant, and how can Christians specifically understand it better? Today's guest is a good friend and somebody who I'm, as I said, been so excited to bring on to, to uh, some episode, and this is really the right one. Sandra Osterbaris is the director of, of the Israel office of CFOIC Heartland, that's the Christian Friends of the Israeli Communities. She was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, in an or, and, and in an Orthodox Jewish home. She was educated at the Hebrew Academy of Cleveland, a religious all-day school. Upon graduating from high school, Sandra studied in Jerusalem College for Women, and then she went on to Columbia University, where she received her bachelor's in history and English at Barnard College and her JD at Columbia University School of Law. In 1984, after practicing law in New York, Sandra moved to Israel. She continued her legal career here in Israel, after being accepted to the Israeli bar. In 1985, Sandra and her husband 
joined Nevei Eliza, a group of American Orthodox Jews that were building a new neighborhood in the small Samaritan town of Carnei Shomron. Shortly thereafter, the first intifada began and Sandra was drawn into advocacy for and a spokesman of the communities in Judea and Samaria. Sandra was connected with CFOIC Heartland since its inception in 1995. And in 1998, she opened the Israel office in order to enhance the organization's activities in support of Jewish communities of Judea, Samaria, and Gaza. As director of the Israel office, Sandra coordinates with much of CFOIC Heartland's programs all around the world. CFOIC Heartland is the only Christian organization to focus exclusively on the Jewish communities in Judea and Samaria, the heartland of biblical Israel. CFOIC Heartland raises funds for these communities and encourages tourism to biblical sites here. They are a great resource for connecting Christians to the people of biblical Israel while working in close cooperation, both with Christian organizations here in the land and with Jew Jewish organizations interested in linking with Christians from all around the world. Sandra and her husband, Edward, have raised five children in Carnet Shomron, where they still reside today. In her spare time, Sandra enjoys spending some of her time with her grandchildren and studying and teaching Bible, her greatest passion. And that's the really the appropriate segue because I've long felt that Sandra is one of the best Bible teachers, period, that I've had the privilege of interacting with. So we're going to unpack now some of the issues in Leviticus that may make it complicated and hard for us to understand. And I'm confident that when we finish our dialogue, we'll have a lot more questions, but we're also gonna have a lot more understanding. Sandra, welcome. It is really a delight to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we're, we're gonna jump right in. Um, th there, there are a number of general themes and a lot of specifics that maybe we'll have time to get into. And I wanna speak generally and then going into some of, of the specifics, but Leviticus is, yeah, I mean, your, your point was right. It's it's God's divine word, so it's not insignificant, but it is harder to understand. One of the things that makes it so is that the whole idea, which we haven't done in, in almost 2,000 years, is the idea of bringing sacrifices. You haven't been to my home yet, but where I sit on the seventh story of, a, of, of an apartment built, seventh floor of an apartment building in Efrat overlooking to the north, I can see the Temple Mount, and I always think about you know, the last fires that, that were there significantly were, were, were in the year 70 when the temple was destroyed. But just before that, weeks before that, we were offering sacrifices and lots and lots of smoke that was come up. What, what do we learn from all of the sacrifices? Not all were animals necessary or offerings, but what do we learn and why is that important now? Okay, well, first of all, I wanna give a bit of perspective, okay? Good. Because when we talk about the Bible, we talk about God's word, there's no question that we all believe that God's word is eternal and that the Bible, as we have it, is a Bible that is supposed to be as relevant to us today as it was to our ancestors 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. And, and that, of course, is a very important tenet of faith, both for Christians and for Jews. Excellent. But I think it's also important to realize that the Bible itself was written at a particular time. And so it's not just that when it was written, it was also going to be relevant for, you know, today, 2022, but it had to be particularly relevant for the people it was talking to. And ah, so great. I think it's very important to keep that in context in mind. Uh, and that is how I look at sacrifices. Now, there's actually an interesting debate out there amongst Jewish sages going back to the Middle Ages, 
Okay, why sacrifices? What is what is the point? And already when these sages were uh, scholars were debating this, there had not been any sacrifices already for quite some time. Okay, well, we Good go point. back and say, well, you know, these people were, were debating this issue 800 years ago, a thousand years ago, but that they were still a thousand years ago, a thousand years after the temple. So this, um, even for them, it was a question. Now Maimonides, okay, puts forth a very interesting uh, theory, which I embrace. I, I think it makes a lot of sense. What he's saying is as follows. In the ancient world, at the time which the Bible was written, um, if you wanted to pray, show devotion, show dedication, um, to you, humble yourself before your God, the way to do that was through sacrifice. And as much as Judaism presented a, a total 180 degree, degree turn from a pagan way of looking at things, um, there were certain things that God in his wisdom understood, you cannot uproot everything. You have to uproot anything that is against the faith. In other words, there's no tolerance in anywhere in the Bible for a pagan type of belief. The, the demand from the nation of Israel, from humanity is to believe in one God. No, you know, and, and constantly the Bible talks about how can you, how can you buy, bow down to these tree, trees and stones and, and idols and all kinds of stuff. However, if you take a people and you tell them, we're changing your, your religion, okay? No more, no more pagan. You, start, you, you know, look at the children of Israel. They just come out of Egypt. We can assume that they may have been loyal to believing in one God, but we're not sure, okay? By but the way, Sandra, I just yeah. want to interject. What's so interesting also is that when we're reading Leviticus, the Jewish people are still in the desert. We're not even here in the land exactly. yet. Exactly. Exactly, but that's the point. They've just come out of Egypt. And so what exactly they believed in Egypt, it's not clear, okay? But they were surrounded by a pagan world in Egypt, okay? Egypt had many gods and many ways of worshiping those gods, okay? And sacrifices. They're also about to go into the land of Canaan, which as the Bible tells us, is full of pagan worship. And so it's one thing to say, don't follow their gods. It's another thing to say, change how you worship. And therefore what Maimonides is saying is that giving people the ability to bring a sacrifice is a way of demonstrating worship, closeness, uh, the willingness to sacrifice to God is giving them a language that they understand, okay? It's like if you would go to someone today and you would say, okay, I want you to believe in one God. And you have always prayed to your God in Chinese, but you can't pray to your God in Chinese. You have to pray in English. And this person doesn't know English. You can't do that. And so actually sacrifices is a language. It's a, it's a way oh. of offering yourself. And it's very interesting in Hebrew, the word for sacrifice is korban. Okay. And korban, the root of korban is it's two different, similar, it's the same root, but two different meanings. One means to come close, okay? Right. One means, of course, to sacrifice. It's both. Um, and so the idea literally, of, you know, we talk about sacrifices. Very often uh, Christians uh, will use the word offering, okay? Or offering is a completely different word. Offering is Correct. more like uh, a gift. And, and that is a word right. for a different kind of mincha is an offering. That's a gift. But if you're talking about sacrifice, you're thinking about the person 
who wants to come close to God and wants to say something to God. He's trying to do both things. He wants to say to God, I will do anything for you. I will sacrifice whatever is dear to me to express my um, you know, submission to you. And at the same time, through that sacrifice, you're saying, I want to get close to God. I want to achieve a degree of intimacy. And so I think you have to see that as the idea of sacrifice and also place it in its historical context. And then I think that helps us relate to the book of Leviticus. So it would have been too radical 3,500 years ago to just have God say, we're going to have a prayer in the morning. We're going to have a prayer in the afternoon. We're going to have a prayer in the evening. And this is sort of the, this is sort of the, um, the foundation of what those are going to be about. That would have been, that would have been too, maybe radical is not the right word, but, but um, culturally uh, disruptive. Yeah. And I think even more than that, I, I once, I once heard a lecture that I thought was fascinating that talked about um, using, there's a number of, the Temple Institute, for example, has created all these beautiful artistic portrayals of what different elements of the temple would have looked like and what the sacrifices would have looked like. And this was a lecture where they used some of those portrayals, but the descriptions were so vivid. There was a lot of blood, tremendous amount of blood. And, and, and I, and someone once explained something to me, but I, which I could really relate to. They said, when we think about, um, you know, eating, eating steak, okay? We don't go and take the cow and slaughter the cow. I mean, most of us don't, okay? We go to the supermarket and we buy this nice steak in, in a nylon package, okay? At a time when people were much closer to this idea of slaughtering animals, the blood came out. There's something visceral that happens wow. to you when you're involved with this blood, you see the blood, you can relate to the fact that here before the grace of God goes, I, I sinned, I deserve to be, you know, to be hit, to be struck, to be whatever by God. And so I'm asking God to kind of take this animal uh, as a sacrifice instead of me. And the very act of drawing the blood gives, gives this and and. It, it's very experiential. It, it, you cannot compare that. And as much as today, I would say, ooh, you know, about that. But that's an experience you cannot compare to saying words. It, it's right. not the same, certainly right. not for that kind of culture back then. Well, we have the saying in English, it show it, about having more skin in the game. And in, the, right. in this case, it's blood in the game. But what really, when you said that, my heart started racing because I've never thought of it from that perspective, but yeah, sure. An average person, I, you know, I don't know what it costs to have a goat or a, or a sheep or whatever, whatever. Uh, I, 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 but, but yeah, it, it's much more skin in the game to be bringing that sacrifice to God, at, but it, it, it also directly impacts your sustenance uh, as well as a, a, a firm I mean, certainly more demonstration of faith than you and I going into the butcher section of our local grocery store and buying a steak or a chicken. Wow. Very, very profound. So, so, so fast forward 2000 years, and it's not even 2000 years, right? Because we, what we're doing now is more or less been the tradition that's evolved since uh, the destruction of the second temple. The theory goes uh, um, among those what you didn't say is when the temple's restored, 
that there won't be sacrifices. And that's a that's deba a debate. Among, that's a debate. Right, it's right. a debate. So maybe we'll touch upon that. But but now it, using the, the, the great uh, uh, metaphors that you use in terms of the language of communication, now in the 21st century, if the temple were to fall from the sky tomorrow uh, or, 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 or whatever other way that would bring it, we're not necessarily going to go back to sacrifices because that's not the way of communicating. I agree. You know, and, and actually I ask myself a lot of this because, you know, as modern people today, we are very Hollywood oriented. Uh, by that, I mean, there was a time where you wanted to feel what something must have been like, picture a, a battle, a battle <laughs> scene with a lot of violence and emotion yeah. and passion, and you would read it in a book. Okay, well, for, you may have been in a soldier at one point, and then you might read it in a book and the descriptions would kind of convey an image. Well, today, much more than reading in the book, people go to the movies, okay? And so the old kind of movies were very primitive. They didn't have all the props and all the, you know, uh, technology. Today, we've gotten to a point that we're, in a way we're very spoiled. Our senses have become spoiled because all these special effects mm. are there to create emotions within us. Um, so I wonder, will we need something, a super duper multimedia kind of, you know, high tech kind of experience to engender emotions? Or will we going in the opposite direction? Will we go back to something more real and more physical in order to engender emotions. But I think that that is what the, the challenge is to create in the temple, a place where you meet God and you feel God, but God is not physical. You can't see him, you can't touch him. Right. How do we gain an experience that enables us to feel close to God, to feel God? And so the, let, let, let me, put words in your mouth and you respond. Uh, the, as, as we read about all of the sacrifices in Leviticus, that's very relevant. That was very relevant there. That was a, a, a if not the language of communication. And as you correctly pointed out, the, the Hebrew word for sacrifice also has the double meaning of to bring closer. And, and, and there's, that's, not a, that's not a coincidence. Um, but today, when we read it, it's not it, it it's not part of our language. But the point of the point of it all is for us to understand and become closer to God using our current language. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So okay. the thing is, look, Leviticus is a, is a book that is hard for me to teach and to study because. I don't have any problem finding meaning in the overall principles of all the various things that. Why for this particular sacrifice are you using a bull of a particular age? And for this uh. one, you have a, a, a female and that one. You... I want you to explain why for this particular sacrifice, it's a female animal and not a male animal. And I looked at her and I said, I have no clue. Oh, okay. Great. Now there are people who want to try to understand all those details. And actually there's many, many Jewish com commentaries over the ages who sought meaning 
in those little fine details. Uh, I personally don't feel that there are symbolic meanings that you can find even in those details that maybe would not have spoken to the people 3,000 years ago, but speak to people today. I think everybody's going to find some meaning in some level of what's going on in Leviticus. Ah, so that's that's very interesting because one of the problems is to superimpose what meaning we have, what 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 we might find meaning in today. But sometimes people do that very um, brashly in ways that are completely unbiblical. That that X, that X means I, who who knows what X means uh, uh, apple pie, and 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 completely not relatable right. things. But people see it. And that's a that's problematic in not understanding the language, and you've kind of given a depiction. You know, I I love that we're talking about this as a wider theme, but I have to ask one of the things that's always troubled me in Leviticus ten, where Nadav and Avihu, uh, Aaron's sons, right? They're 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 significant people. Moses's nephews, they're so zealous, they're so excited, and to use your 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 terms. If that was their language, instead of just speaking it, it's almost as if they shouted it. When they brought a sacrifice that wasn't a, um, I don't know what the right word is. It wasn't a, it was, it was not, it was not ordained. It was not subscribed. It was over and above and not, and no one struck them down or slapped them on the wrist and said, Hey, that's not how we do things. They were killed. What's that about? Well, it's actually, um, a, a fascinating story. And I would say every time I read it and study it, I, I come up with a, with a different perspective. Uh, it's there to, to, to shock and to jar. There's no question. But I think going back to all the details that we don't understand in Leviticus, all these different details of the, of the sacrifices, I think the message that comes out of Nadav and Abihu is whether you or not you understand the significance of the details, these are the details that God wants. And, you know, many commentators have talked about the fact, like you said, Nadav and Abihu, they're Aaron's sons, they're so close to God and, and, and you know, um, how could this have happened? But I think that when you are that holy, take, for example, the high priest. The high priest is the only person who is allowed to go into the Holy of Holies and he is only allowed to go into the Holy Holies on one day, the Day of Atonement. Yep. And when he goes in, he has a very long list of things he can do and a very long list of things he cannot do. And in fact, our traditions tell us, and we read about this in the prayers of the Day of Atonement, how much training this high priest went through before the Day of Atonement to ensure he got it right. Okay. Now, it's the same idea. You cannot, the closer you come to the center of the temple, the closer you come to the Holy of Holies. And here at this situation in, in uh, chapter 10, what is going on? This is in the middle of the, of the dedication of the temple, the dedication of the altar. God's spirit, we see God says he brings down a fire on the altar. And that's where Nadav and Abihu get involved. They come in there in that point of time, well, that's getting awfully close to God's presence. And when you get that close, you've got to be really careful. And I think that's part of the message. God, on the one hand, there are a lot of people who say, oh, God is a merciful God. God is like our father. 
and 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 yes, that is who God is. But God is also our King. God is also a very uh, strict authority that we cannot take lightly. He is not our buddy. Okay, he's not even our father. He's not our buddy. When we get close to God, we have to be careful. And I think that's the most important message of that whole story. So even if you're a biblical royal family, like Nadav and Avihu were, you just can't approach the king and put your arm around him and say, hey, what's up? Exactly. Exactly. And there's something about that distance. I tell you, it reminds me when my kids were all in the army, in the Israeli army, and the Israeli army is known for being far more informal than most armies around the world. But during basic training, all the commanders know that the most important thing that they need to do at that oh, point yeah. is to create what they call distance. Okay. Yes. Even though this commander is probably only a year or two older than these 18-year-old recruits, he's got to put the fear of God in them. And the idea is only after they have the fear of God in them can you relax that a little bit because you know you have a disciplined force. And I think this is what God is saying. God is saying there have to be rules because if not, there's anarchy. Once there are rules and you understand the rules within that framework, you can come and be close, but you have to stick to the rules. Okay, this is amazing. And I'm, I'm looking at the time and I want to take a break, but I also want to pose a question for you to think about during the break. And I realized that we're probably, we probably have enough material to go do two or three sessions. We won't, but we're going to do this again. Um, okay. You mentioned the high priest, you mentioned the Holy of Holies. We believe that the temple is going to be rebuilt, right? Finally, and, and finally, finally, right? That, it's, that right. It'll, be, it'll be back and I'll get to, and I'll see that from my balcony. Um, <laughs> we have, I can't wait, like I'm looking. Yeah. Uh, but so when that happens, if there are no sacrifices, you're gonna answer this after the break. If there are no more sacrifices, What's going on in the Holy of Holies? Is that the sound room for all that light, the, the, all that <laughs> multimedia stuff? So, so think about it. It doesn't take just a break for a minute. In addition to inspiration from Zion, another Genesis 123 Foundation program, Run for Zion, is the first program uniquely for Christians centered around the Jerusalem Marathon, creating meaningful and lasting experiences. We look forward to having you be able to join us in person soon, but now are offering you a way to connect from wherever you are in the world through virtual tours, webinars, and briefings. For information or to register, please go to runforzion.com. Join Run for Zion and bless Israel with every step. Okay, Sandra, we're back. I mean, I, I, I have a feeling by even suggesting what I just did <laughs> that, that someone might strike me down. No, no, well, no, no, no. First of all, remember... There are no sacrifices in the Holy of Holies. Sacrifices are outside. Okay. So what's in the Holy of Holies? The Ark. That's it. The Ark okay. of the Covenant is the only thing that's in there. And actually, during the Second Temple period, there was no Ark. It was an empty room. Now, the, ah. Ark, of the, the Ark of the Covenant, remember what happens in Exodus uh, when, when God first gives the commandments uh, to Moses about uh, how to build the tabernacle, okay? And he, and he talks about the ark. And what does he say about the ark? He says, I will meet you there. I will meet you there between the cherubim, okay? That's what the Holy Holy of is. It represents the place where man meets God. And man doesn't meet God necessarily over the altar. Man meets God over the ark of the covenant because it is the covenant itself between God 
and the nation of Israel that creates the relationship. And that covenant is about obligations, obeying God's word, um, God giving us blessing, we're obeying him. This is what the covenant is. So whether we have a multimedia uh, display in, in the temple, that's not going to happen in the Holy of Holies. I think the whole, and I don't know if it'll be an empty room. I don't know what it is, but it's going to represent the core holiness, the, the place that on the one hand, we're not going to be able to get all the way there. Okay. It's too close. Okay. There has to, when you get close to God, you have to always realize there's this distance. You're not going to get into the Holy of Holies. You want to get as close to the Holy of Holies as possible so that you can feel God's closeness, but you recognize I'm not God. I can't touch God. I can come close, but I can't come all the way. That's awesome. Oh, wait, so, okay. So we've used the H word now a lot, holy, holiness. And that's one of the themes of the book, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 it, it, it necessarily tags on to what we were talking about as far as sacrifices. You, you, what you just said is fabulous. I mean, and, and, and even drawing the distinction between what was in the Holy of Holies in, in Second Temple period but okay now we're reading leviticus in 2022 what's the significance of holiness when we still don't have the temple where nobody's bringing been bringing sacrifices where the ark of the covenant still doesn't we don't have it what why why is that help us understand that today in our lives okay well first of all um in the middle of Leviticus, we have a very significant statement, Leviticus 19. And it says as follows, Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the entire community of the children of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So even though the word holy is used all over the place before and after this, this is the first time and I believe like, well, it's the first time where we see similar things in these next two chapters, but this is really the first time that we have a commandment from God to be holy. And then of course, the question is, what is holy, you know, yeah. which is what you're asking. But before we get to what is holy, there's a hint, be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. Okay. So holy has to do with God. So if we mentioned before about this idea of coming close to the center of God, you yourself are coming close to holiness. I think the very, uh, shall we say, presence of God has within it a definition of holy, okay? The fact that God is holy, whatever that is, okay, uh, we are expected to be holy. Now, in, in Judaism, Judaism, unlike many other religions, especially if I talk about Eastern religions, Eastern religions place a very um, strong emphasis on spirituality as divorced from actual physical actions. So a holy person might be somebody who sits and meditates all day long. He may have many fasts. Um, it is someone who is trying to elevate himself above the physical. But if I go and look to the next, the next verses right after this, oh, be holy because I am holy. We're, what are we talking about? We're talking about honor your parents. We're talking about do not, um, do not have pagan worship. We're talking about when you harvest your field, make sure to leave some, some 
produce in the field so the poor people can enjoy them. It's telling me don't lie, don't steal, don't uh, don't persecute people. Make sure you have justice. All these things, and I'll tell you, it goes on. And actually, in the in the chapters before and chapters afterwards, also great emphasis on sexual purity. It's not ah. just purity. It's it's oh it's sexual practices that are good and holy and those that are not, those that are considered abominations. But everything here, what basically God is saying, I think, is that how do you be holy? I'm giving you the recipe. Here's you the playbook. Follow these rules. Don't yeah. sit and meditate. God wants us to be holy in this world, not out of this world. Beautiful. So, you know, and there's an, another, there's a wonderful tradition. Uh, and, you know, this idea of God says, you be holy because I am holy. There's an implied understanding there that we as human beings are supposed to try to emulate God. That, you know, and so you have this, this tradition that says, well, we see God was very kind. Okay. We see God has, um, you know, has mercy. We see that God visited the ill. It's, it's interesting. It takes um, Abraham when he's sitting out in the heat of the day and he's not feeling so well and, and God comes and visits him. All these different examples. Uh, oh, there's another example. Uh, when a Adam and Eve um, were naked, God clothes them. Wow. So this tradition says, just like God clothes man, you're supposed to look out to clothe someone who doesn't have clothes. Just how God takes mercy, you're supposed to take mercy. But every one of, not one of these examples is God is spiritual, therefore don't eat and drink and contemplate, meditate all day. We in our actions are supposed to emulate God. And that is being holy. That, so that's great. And as you're speaking, I'm thinking from Genesis where God, we, we, in creation, God creates man in his image. And mm -hmm. now we're putting Leviticus right. of, of of understanding what what does that mean? Like what what are our responsibilities to that? Right, right, absolutely. Amazing, amazing. Leviticus also. I mean, Shabbat is is the Sabbath is is um, in multiple places, but toward the end in 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 uh, chapter twenty six, we're we're reading about uh, the, the Sabbath as well. And and I and I don't have the verse open. I it's, I think it's Leviticus. Uh, excuse me, 26.1, but I'm thinking as you're speaking, holy, also the root, uh, kadosh, I'm thinking what we do on Shabbat and we do on the appointed festivals, which is also in, in, in uh, chapter 23, we sanctify the day, we sanctify the time through what we call kiddush. It's the, it's the, um, it, it, if you come to our house and observe it, it's the blessing we say on, on wine, but it, it, it is about that sanctification of time, the holiness of time. What else can you add or, or, or help understand from that? Well, I think there's another aspect that I think you kind of hinted at uh, in the Sabbath that's very much connected to holiness. If I um, look at the end of chapter 20, okay, it's this, I said this 19 and 20 is the chapters we talk a lot about holiness. So kind of to conclude that whole section, we have here, um, God is saying some very interesting things. He's saying in, in verse 24, he says, um, you shall possess their land for I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I, the Lord am your God who has set you apart from other peoples. And then it goes on. So you shall set apart 
the clean beast from the unclean, yeah. Yeah. the unclean bird from the clean. Okay, now we just have before this, we had all these laws about the clean and unclean animals and it's getting stuck in here, okay? And then it says, um, and at the end, you shall not draw abomination upon yourself through beast or bird or anything with which the ground is alive. I've set you apart for you to treat as unclean. And what's the conclusion? You shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from other people's to be mine. So we have here this idea of holiness is also this idea of division, of setting apart. So the holy, the holy from the unholy, the pure from the impure, we're talking about animals, we're talking about behavior, like we talked about before, the various sexual behaviors, there's holy behavior and unholy behavior, okay? When we talk about um, separating from the nations, okay? Now, I don't think here we're talking about, you know, when we Christians and Jews are talking together about Bible, we have certain shared uh, beliefs and we believe in one God and we believe the sanctity of this, of this book, but separating ourselves, especially from the peoples who are pagan, which is what they were talking about here. So much as the book is saying, the concern of pagan influences, you have to separate yourselves. And so I see also holiness being this separation. Now, one of the themes of the Sabbath is separation. Yeah. You yeah. have six days of the week and the yeah. seventh day is separate. And in fact, in the Havdalah ceremony that we say at the end of the Sabbath, the same thing on a cup of wine, it's very similar right. to a Sidush, but we have a completely different kind of language. And the language there is all about separation, that the separation, we are now separating ourselves from Sabbath. We were a day of holy. Now we're going back to our regular lives. And in that prayer itself, and it separates the Jews from the nations, it separates the, the secular from the holy, and, and all the and, and day from night, all these different separations. And I think that's also part of what holiness is. Um, the challenge, of course, is to be holy within this world, not to separate yourself from life and to you know, be an ascetic, but to live within the world and yet find your separations between what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing and, and between the environments that are good for you and the environments that are not good for you. So I didn't check, you probably know this, how many uh, biblical commandments, mitzvot, there are in the book of uh, Leviticus, but there are a lot. And, and these are things that as you and I as Jews study, try to, to observe each one according to how we understand it. How, what's a Christian? Who reads this to 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 uh, to try to understand and that and that holiness? I mean, holiness is a great word, and everyone wants to be holy. And when you speak about be, we're being holy because God is holy, and we want to be like God. That's great, but a Christian does not have the same biblical understanding or or certainly obligation that we have. Um, to to speak to the Christians who are listening and and, and help uh, make that you know. Re relevant in, in in their lives today okay well i think the jewish view is that the bible um well let's say historically the bible was given to the jewish people uh christians will understand that they received the bible because we received it and we shared it with them so to speak right. um but there are many 
Jews will say that the commandments really are aimed at the Jewish people and there's no obligation on the part of a Christian to observe these commandments. There are some Christians today who debate that and believe that some of those commandments they can feel relevant. That's not our view, but it's a view I can understand and respect. However, we do believe that there are commandments in the Bible that are universal uh, and they go to what should be uh, universal morality. Um, if you think about what any society should have it as, as its foundation in order to build a kind and healthy society. Uh, and I think a lot of the commandments that we deal with in Leviticus, uh, let's put the sacrifices aside for a moment, but a lot of these commandments are commandments that really are relevant to everybody. Um, if we talk about some of the things I was mentioning to, to make sure um, that you operate your courts with justice, you treat everyone yeah. kindly, you look after poor people, you don't, you know, there is a, one of the, one of the commandments in Leviticus is make sure you pay a workman's salary on time. Don't make yeah. him wait for a salary. I mean, that is the foundation of a moral society. Don't mistreat your employees. They are not your slaves. Okay. And, and this is something, all of these kinds of things. And of course, one of the things I find today, and I, I think when I speak to my Christian friends, I find we are 100% on the same page. So many of these issues that were once considered universally accepted uh, all over the world, certainly the Western world, um, are now being thrown in the garbage. You know, if we talk about belief in one God, well, how many people disputed that? You know, so you had a Christian way of looking at it, a Jewish way of looking at it, you know, but how many people disputed that there was a God? Well, today, you know, secularism has, has so taken over. Uh, if you talk about sexual morality, th this was normal. I mean, everybody had similar ways of looking at this. And today, you know, it's thrown out. And so I think sometimes we, we need to re read Leviticus and remind ourselves that God has given us a roadmap, a roadmap yeah. not only to be holy, but a roadmap for creating a kind and just society. And this is something I think everybody can learn from. That's amazing. You know, I, I, I introduced you and it wasn't rhetoric when I said, because I, I told you this, It's I, I believe it sincerely. You're one of the best Bible teachers that I know. And I really enjoy this. And I'm, and I'm thinking, wow, I wish she was living in a frat and I could Go go! <laughs> it's really good stuff. Thank I hope you. I hope everything uh, everyone else is getting as much out of this as I am. Um, I want to take another really quick break, and then we've been speaking about purity, and come back and 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 I think probably begin to wrap up. But that's real important in our lives today, and some of the things you were just talking about. If you're a parent like me, you know there are plenty of reasons to worry about our kids, but there's one particular issue with enormous consequences for our kids that many are uncomfortable discussing, online pornography. As kids spend more and more time online, they're being exposed to explicit sexual content at record rates. By age 13, many are exposed to graphic sexual content that has serious lasting consequences. Even though research links pornography exposure to worse mental health, unstable relationships, and other issues, the big tech companies are doing almost nothing to stop it. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Canopy, a new partner of ours that's helping parents take back control over what their kids see online. Canopy uses state-of-the-art artificial intelligence developed here in Israel 
to make the internet safe for our kids by blocking explicit material on every single website. You can learn more and subscribe with special rates at canopy.us. And when you use our special discount code, Genesis123 at checkout, you'll get 30 days free and 15% off your subscription forever. Your kids will thank you for life. Okay, so Sandra, we've spoken all kinds of purity, and it goes to, to the, uh, the previous themes, the holiness and, and sexual purity and, and, and uh, pu- uh, purity in, in, in terms of um, ritual, which goes to the, high, to the priests and, the high, and, and, and approaching and coming into the temple. Um, even, even today, by the way, even today when Jews ascend to the Temple Mount, with, there, there's a degree of uh, purity that we, that we need to, ritual purity that's involved. And a lot of people won't think of, th- think of purity from a ritual perspective. But now, I mean, again, now I'm just thinking off the cuff and you're the expert and I'm not, but yes, there's, there's purity and impurity in our lives. And I think the, the, probably one of the most vivid and, and, and also the way you explained it before in terms of sacrifices is that's what was done. And then in terms of the, the issues of holiness and particularly the, uh, the, the 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 things that were very common then in a pagan world, this is where we're saying, oh, we're going to be distinct, distinct from from a, and 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 it's relating to the Sabbath and it's relating to sexuality, it's relating really to to everything in our lives. But purity confuses me. I understand I can go to a mikvah, a ritual bath, and and become ritually pure. But except for going up to the Temple Mount today, why do I need to do that? Okay, well, first of all, I would mention that um, there is a part of these, you know, as you say, so much of the ritual purity laws are surrounding the temple. In fact, at its basis, uh, it's all about the temple, really. Uh, And the extent to which you are pure, impure, will define your ability to access the temple. Um, And in fact, after after the temple was destroyed, um, the second temple was destroyed, uh, by definition, most of these purity laws didn't, were no longer relevant. But for quite some time, for probably about 100, maybe even 200 years, there were small groups of people within Jewish society living in Israel at the time that kept the purity laws. Okay. Now, wow. this time, which is a little crazy because what kind of, I'm not talking about kosher laws, I'm talking about purity laws. Now, let me give you an example of what a purity law would be. Um, so a woman, for example, when she is menstruating, she is considered impure until she finishes her menstruation, and then she has to go to a ritual bath. Now, during that time, in the original biblical way it was understood, and the way it was actually practiced during the Second Temple period, she would have a separate place. Because if she touched a plate, a chair, a bed, okay, that would make it impure. And then if somebody else touched that same plate, it would make them impure, okay? Now we don't practice any of those things anymore. Well, a part of it we do, but not this, you know, contagion of- Not the transmission of impurity that way. That we don't practice. But during this time, immediately after the temple, there were these people that would be very careful not to eat together with people that were not making sure they were pure, following these rules. And men also have times when they're impure and then they would have to go to the ritual bath. Eventually this died out. But it was very interesting because it was clearly voluntary at that point. Nobody had to do it. There was no temple. But this whole concept of purity 
to make sure you're in a position where you can come to the temple. What will that mean when the temple's rebuilt? I have no idea. I recently heard a lecture by from a rabbi who said he has nightmares about this because he can't imagine living a life with that level of, of uh, rules with pure and impure. So uh, my attitude is let's wait and see. God will let us know what he wants us to do. But there is one level of purity that is very much in practice today. And that is this issue of a woman, uh, either after she's had a baby or uh, during her menstruation, where she is in a, in a situation of impurity. And then she has to wait uh, and then go to a, um, a ritual bath. And only after that will she be able to resume relations with her husband. And, and, and that's something that remains very meaningful to men and women today. Yeah. Uh, because again, it creates this this balance of separation uh, and then reunity. And, and people talk about um, making sure sex, sexual relations is something that is pure, that is something within the context of a marriage. It is not just whenever I feel like it. it right. There's balances, there's, there's uh, checks and balances, so to speak. And so there, there's something about that. And I think that we, as we who practice this, really can relate to it in practice there's something about putting guidelines so that we just don't do anything we want you know and i would say i would relate that also to kosher rules even though the language there is a little different okay it's also pure and impure uh, but there's also a bit of other languages but let's talk about the pure and the impure the limitation that that puts upon me i can't just go into when i'm traveling in the states and you know mcdonald's and it looks great I can't do that. I can't go there. God is giving me uh, limitations. And I think there are real reasons for these limitations. Some of these I understand and some of them I don't. But I can tell you the effect is that I will never be the kind of person who will just eat, drink and be merry all the time because my eating and my drinking has limitations on it. And I think that's a healthy thing. Yeah, that's that's a, it's a, great, um, a great modern explanation. As you were speaking... I thought of another one that doesn't relate to you or I specifically, but today, if you go to a Jewish cemetery, specifically here in Israel, you'll see signs there. The cemeteries are constructed in such a way that anyone who's, who's a Kohen of a priest of the, of the priestly class are not allowed to approach and be in, in contact with a dead body uh, ex- with, with limited exceptions because they'll become ritually impured. But then th- that leads to the question, okay, so for what? Because why now? Because we don't have a temple for them to be doing their um, worship in as members of, of the priestly class. Is that at all? Do you think that's all re- um, c- connected today to what, to, to after Second Temple times where people maintained a status of ritual purity? I think so. I think that was the one thing that did remain, the priests. Um, and look, there, there were there was um, a very great rabbi. His name was Rabbi Abraham Isaac Hakohen Cook. So he was a Kohen. He was a priest, and he was one of the first religious Zionist rabbis. A rabbi who wrote a great deal about the. He, he died, unfortunately, before the state of Israel was established, but he was very much involved in Israel at the beginning of the 20th century. He was the first chief rabbi of Israel. And he firmly believed that the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel in the 20th century was the beginning of the final redemption. And right. therefore, he started studying the passages in the Talmud 
that go into vast detail about sacrifices because he believed, he says, I am a coin, I'm a priest and the Messiah can come at any minute and then the temple will be built and I have to be ready. And I think this is very much the same idea that through the centuries, priests passed from father to son, the idea that there's not much we can do right now, but we have to be ready. And if that means being careful as much as possible not to come close to a dead body, that's what we have to do. And that's what they've done, to be ready. Which also goes to the point that you emphasized before of, of our being separate as a people, right? Mm-hmm. That, that it's not, uh, that's a specific class of us, a, 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 a tribe, tribe the, the priestly class, but, um, but that um, emphasizes that we're not just intermingling with everyone else and doing what they do. Exactly, exactly. Um, Sandra, you know, I made this whole list of verses that I wanted to get through uh, or, or, or begin to ask about. And, and I know we can't do it justice. In fact, I think just talking about the whole book of Leviticus in an hour, probably <laughs> someone will, uh, you know, you and I can go to a Bible study together and c- cover one portion in an hour and that's not enough. So we've, we've really, really, really only scratched the surface, but I know, I, I know for me, it's been tremendous. Before we wrap up, what do you wanna say that's, that I, we haven't talked about? What's missing? What do people under, need to understand today in 22, where we still believe that Messiah is coming, we still believe that the temple is coming and we're smack in the middle of reading Leviticus now in our annual cycle of reading the whole Torah, but making that practical and understandable today. Well, you know, at the very end of Leviticus, I think is a, is a wonderful kind of summing up because the end of Leviticus is a covenant. Uh, actually, uh, it starts in, uh, I believe it's in chapter 24 or something. Um, I'll check it in a second. But um, we have here uh, a covenant, but it starts, oh yeah, chapter 25. Chapter 25, until that chapter, we have the beginning of of Leviticus begins with God speaking to Moses in the tent of meeting, and which is the, you know, the tabernacle. And we have so much of what we discussed, holiness and sacrifices, it's all around the temple and the tabernacle. And then all of a sudden, chapter 25 kind of goes backwards because it says that Moses is, God is speaking to Moses in Mount Sinai. Well, he was already at Mount Sinai, you know, he came down. So the understanding is that this is a, a particular few chapters here that actually happened earlier, okay, really should have been in, in the book of Exodus right after Moses came down with the tablets uh, from Mount Sinai. Uh, and yet it's put here, okay? And what is in this, what is in these following chapters is this covenant. And the covenant, which begins the text of the covenant, which begins in chapter 26, lays out these very fundamental concepts of the relationship between God and Israel. If we obey his commandments, then we will be blessed in the land of Israel. If we disobey his commandments, we will be we will receive punishment and ultimately be exiled from the land of Israel. And I think that this is purposely put here at the end of Leviticus because of all of Leviticus is talking about um, being holy and, and the sacrifices and the ways we need to separate ourselves and, and remain loyal to God. That covenant, more than anything else, kind of brings that together. 
but it also brings together the fact that all of this is connected to the land of Israel. God did not create a relationship with the Jewish people, you know, in, in, in the air, okay? He can, connected with us um, in anticipation of us going into the land of Israel. And all of this will come together in the land of Israel. And I think this is something that's very, very important for us today. When we talk about Leviticus in general, we talk about the Bible as a whole, okay? We cannot divorce it from the land of Israel. Everything about the relationship between the nation of Israel and the God of Israel is connected to the land of Israel. And I would say to Christians, if you really wanna understand your Bible, you have to connect to the land of Israel because the real understanding of what the Bible is talking about can best be understood once you connect not only to the Jewish people, but to the land of Israel. That's, that's really tremendous. Um, also uh, in, an earlier con in a different context earlier, we spoke about the fact that when this is being written, we're talking to uh, two million people who had never been in Israel, who, right. who, 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 and so, and so, it's fascinating that you picked out that that's the summary, which is kind of telling people, okay, you don't understand all of this stuff, and you're in the middle of a desert, and I don't know at what point that is, how many more years that, and they didn't know it could have been. The, well, how it was supposed years. to be a couple months later, and ended up being thirty-eight years later. Right. So, so, but the whole generation had never been in Israel, had been enslaved. And, and, and in a sense, it's really kind of, it doesn't say it, but it, but in order to really get any of this, of course it's related to the land of Israel, but but you have to have abundant faith because, because land of Israel, I, I know it's not a good analogy, is sort of like Oz in the Wizard of Oz, where, where you see this thing and they didn't know, they didn't know what it was gonna be like, but God said, God's saying that this is this is this is the penultimate goal, and and right. in order to do in order to get there, these are the things that you need to do, and even saying and if you don't follow the rules, you're going to be kicked out. Well, how do I? Why do I need to be care care about being kicked out of a place that I've never been to, that I really can't relate to, other than other than my faith? It's extraordinary. Absolutely, really amazing, Sandra. As I, as I expected, this would be great. I, I hope that I'm not the only one who, I'm sure I'm not, but I'd love for people to share the feedback and, and um, maybe we'll do this again, not on a book by book, uh, but, but, but I don't know, uh, but, but this is great. And I'm so glad finally I made this uh, opportunity and I hope everyone has enjoyed. Let me just wrap up by, um, by reminding people, we have a program that we began this year uh, where we were offering our listeners a special gift. Every month, we're giving away a special volume in what I call from Jonathan's Bookshelf. All you need to do is go to the Inspiration from Zion social media and like and follow us. And when you comment and share the link to this program, we're going to select one winner at random every month for a special volume that's going to be meaningful and connect to Israel, to the land of Israel and the people of Israel. I want to uh, give a special thanks to our uh, sponsors, the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. If you're ever in the area or passing through, and you should go and say hi and thank you to them for helping make this program and conversations like this possible. And also thank you to the Coin family as well for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and build bridges 
And if you'd like to be a sponsor of a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or special occasion, please be in touch at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your comments as well as part of a dialogue and invite you to send any questions as well, especially questions you have about, about traditional Judaism for conversations like this with Sandra and for our Ask the Rabbi programs. Please share this with others who will also find it of interest and continue to join, join us right here every week as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy and send my blessings from right here in the Judean mountains. Thank you and God bless you. Thank you. Thank you.